0: We have been duped by feminism, sexual liberation, and antidepressants. We have been told that we are powerful and free now as women, but we feel tired, wired, and bitter. We're mostly eating right, exercising, and meditating, wrangling to-do lists, and arranging playdates, and yet there's a haunting hollowness beneath the huge complaints What if I told you that there is a huge storehouse, a reservoir of energy inside of you that has not been tapped, that you could feel light and pulsing, excited and alive in ways that a wellness lifestyle cannot deliver, that you could trust yourself, that the world could feel safe and that unexpected and expected delights could start to illuminate your path. No coach, therapist, doctor, or guru required. Just you learning to get real, present, and attentive with you. I feel like I'm here to match make your inner parts for the greatest love affair ever written. I want to help you learn first where you're buying eggs from the hardware store, which is the source of all pain. I want to help you master entering through the upset, which is the only spiritual practice you'll ever need and to get real comfortable putting on your villain crown, which is, in my opinion, the key to true power. And then you'll attune to your inner yes, so you can live the life defined by the specific pleasure of who you are. I am so excited to announce my latest book called The Reclaimed Woman, which is available for pre-order now, So if you head to the link in show notes, you can learn more about bonuses, events, and companion offerings. And I cannot wait to see your gorgeous face on the path. I'm Dr. Kelly Brogan. You may know me as a New York Times bestselling author of a book with an exploding pill on the cover, renegade psychiatrist, pole dancer, or honorary member of the Disinformation Dozen. What can I say, I'm a born provocateur. I've spent most of my recent life exposing deceptions, connecting dots and discovering the secret places my inner victim is still waiting to be liberated. And now I feel called to help you reclaim all of your parts, your health, your sexuality, your power and your expression so that you can finally truly own yourself. I want to ignite in you that inner knowing and the pulsing vitality that lives beneath your disempowerment, disconnection, and resentment so that you can audaciously, courageously, and playfully alchemize your struggle into the specific pleasure of who you are. This is Reclamation Radio, a Soulfire production. The conversation that follows is from my incredible collection, Faces of Fierce Femininity, where I sat down with the 12 women who have inspired my embodiment journey for real, raw, and uncensored inspiration. You can purchase the collection at kellybroganmd.com and at the link in show notes. Hi, all. I am very, very excited to be in conversation today with one of the most significant influences on my process probably in my entire process, but it's been relatively recent and I have put her work to very, very deep application in the time since I have read her book. I'm here with Carolyn Elliott, who is the author of Existential Kink. And I am really, really ready to unpack this for you all in a way that I think will be immediately accessible like today. And I'll just start out by saying that I sort of penned a phrase in my last book called Suffering Ends Where Meaning Begins. And it was a really funny experience because when I wrote that, I must've gotten that from somewhere, right? And so I put it in quotes and I put it into the old Google and the only thing, three things came up and the only thing that came up was a blog I had already written and something related from Viktor Frankl. And I thought, well, this is weird. Okay. So I must be tapping into something that is, you know, a more, more collective understanding. And I really worked with that idea in my own life for a long time, where every time I would encounter something I didn't like about my lived experience, I would immediately mine it for meaning for the lesson. Right. And I started to enter into a dynamic. I think is probably not uncommon, especially maybe even for those who are listening here at this stage where I developed a relationship with the universe, if you will, where I was like an unconsenting sub, right? Like to this like bad dom who was going to arbitrarily deliver me punitive lessons. And I would just have to beg for mercy. And I promise I'll get it right this time, you know? And I was living my life like a little bit like this, like ducking spiritual lessons and cosmic two by fours. And when I read Existential Kink, which came you know, on really the wave of this process of embodiment that has inspired this entire salon, something so delighted within me to recognize that those two polarities are within me. Of course they are, right? Like it's one of those remembrances that just felt immediately like, of course, you know, the Dom and Sub are in here and I'm playing with myself, you know, as an Alan Watts Fan forever he talks about this that, you know how we how we play this game of hide and seek with ourselves called our lives right and so I want to explore with Carolyn today how it could be that as she says, having is evidence of wanting how could it possibly be that we have this much power this much creative agency in our lives and why would we ever <laughs> create these challenges that we create so I'd love to start out, Carolyn, just because I know, you know, I'm like tickled by how how similar our worldviews are and how you have operationalized this idea of personal responsibility in such similar ways to the work that I've done in the health space. And I want to start out just by sort of hearing from you where you found insufficiencies in spiritual rhetoric and you know, desire and manifestation teachings that really must have given birth to this concept that you have put on the map. And I know you draw from many ancient lineages. However, you've put it on the colloquial map so that we can all make use of it in very meaningful ways. So where did you start to feel as I did? You know, this is all great. (laughs) This, you know, meaningful universe we've contracted to embody in. However, there's something I'm still suffering right like I'm still struggling I'm still visiting with the same patterns even though I've gotten the lesson like why is this happening and how did that sort of dovetail into this this body of work that you've created
1: yes thank you Kelly so yeah in my 20s I was in graduate school for critical and cultural studies so literature I, was, I taught English classes got a PhD And I was also involved in a unity church, which is like new thought law of attraction, you know, Marianne Williamson is the pastor of a new thought church. And I loved that stuff. I've always believed in magic. And I always, you know, I would have vision boards and affirmations and I was just kind of puzzled like, well, it's worked for some things definitely has worked awesome. And also, well, here I am, I, after I graduated, I knew I didn't want to be in academia and I was sort of in this really weird liminal place. And I was like living on friends' couches and I would call my mom and be like, I don't have any money for food. And she would be like, guess you got to go stand in line at the food bank (laughs) then. And I was like, standing in line at the food bank. I had been, I think I was like working as a freelance copywriter for online. I was, you know, what can you do with an English degree is an old joke. The answer is anything you can do without one. (laughs) So I was basically like, I might as well have been a high school dropout in terms of conventional career choices. I didn't know what to do. So standing in line one day at the food bank was like freezing cold and standing in line for my government cheese. And I was like, wow, I really, and I was also involved in the orgasmic meditation movement, which is something that Nicole de did. I think there's going to be like a Netflix documentary about the big scandal. There were definitely messed up shadowy things going on in the orgasmic meditation movement. But I also learned a lot of really beautiful positive stuff there, mainly about like the Shakti and the orgasmic energy in my own body, like is the goddess, is the generative force. And I would have visions in orgasmic meditation sessions where I would see like, whoa, the energy from my pussy is like this It's waterfalls and then it turns into a butterfly and then it turns into a rose like all of these like weirdly conventional feminine symbols but like I could physically like see it and feel it within the context because orgasm when worked with in a tantric way is absolutely like an endogenous psychedelic within our bodies. So I was having all of this awakening and on one level, I was feeling very powerful. I was like, whoa, I I used to, I mean, my dad brought me up in like Wiccan and Druid things, but like the goddess there just seemed like this hallmark card, fluffy bunny. I don't know, didn't know how to have her be relevant to my life. And I was like, oh my gosh, she is the, the pleasure energy in my body. So I was having this like very deep awakening realization of magic in that form And I was super broke and I was like living on my friend's couches and I was kind of a sad sack. And so standing in line there, I was thinking about all of this law of attraction stuff and I was like, wow, my ego really wants to be rich. My ego really does not want this humiliation of standing in this line right now. This is not where I thought that I would be when I was, you know, 29 years old. I thought I was going to be a fancy professor, but no. So... I got curious because in grad school, I read all of this Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud, and you know, they talk about the unconscious and they talk about the unconscious has desires within it that the conscious mind is not aware of, like at all. And I was like, standing in this line, I was like, I wonder if some part of me really, really desires all of this anxiety and humiliation attached to not having any money or any idea of what to do for money. And maybe that part of me is totally working in a law of attraction kind of way. Maybe that part of me is completely getting what it wants. But my conscious mind, my ego has all of these negative judgments about it. So I'm not enjoying it. I'm not receiving the fulfillment that this unconscious part of me is receiving. And I got this idea you know, what if this is happening anyways? So what if I just let go for like, tried to let go for 15 minutes, 30 minutes at a time of my conscious mind's negative judgments about this is so terrible. This shouldn't be happening. This means that I suck. This means that the world sucks. What if I just set all of that aside and let this unconscious part of me that perhaps really desires this stuff, see if I can get in touch with that and let it experience fulfillment. And I did. And I found that you know probably also because my body was pretty awake and alive from participating in the orgasmic meditation stroking which for those of you who don't know orgasmic meditation is a partnered practice and it's 15 minutes long and it involves one partner usually a guy it can be anybody stroking the clitoris of a woman for 15 minutes in this very precise way that's like very light little strokes and wearing like gloves and using a specific kind of lube and there's this whole sort of ritual pattern of it basically nicole de innovated sort of zen version of tantra like a very simplified where it's all about focusing on the sensation of the stroking and not trying for climax or not going up into like pornographic fantasy or anything just like purely focus on the sensation so i did have a lot of that energy and sensation in my body and i found that i could access Like, oh my gosh, there is. So I was also doing the work of Byron Katie, which highly, highly recommend, right? Byron Katie is such a genius. And so I think I started out because I was trying to get into being a coach at the time. And I think I was doing coaching for like a hundred dollars an hour. And like, that's what I was paying my friend to like sleep on their couch, a few hundred dollars. And I was aware that I had these other friends in the orgasmic meditation movement who were being paid like a thousand dollars an hour as a coach. And that like blew my mind because I'd grown up in this sort of blue collar environment where everybody that I knew worked for nonprofits and they made like maximum $25 an hour. And so a thousand dollars an hour I was a like, what? how is that even real? And why aren't I being paid that? <laughs> I'm a better coach than they are. Anyways. So I was doing this Byron Katie, judge your neighbor on, you know, people should want to pay me lots of money for coaching. And of course, Byron Katie, you do turn around. So you turn around to the opposite. So you ask questions about it. Is that true? And I absolutely know that that's true. Who would I be without that thought? And then you turn it around. So I turned it around to, nobody should ever want to pay me any money for coaching ever. And I just sort of let let that land in my body. And I felt this like zing, like I was so turned on by the thought of nobody ever wanting to pay me just like, and I was like, oh my God, I don't just have like a hip bedroom kink I have an actual sexual attraction to not being valued with money that is affecting my whole life. And that was really big for me. And so I just, I would spend time each day, just opening up and just, okay, well this part of me enjoys it. So I might as well just let it move through, let it take satisfaction in the situation that it's created and see what happens. And it was really amazing to me because I just did that for a few weeks every day. And one day I woke up and I had this idea to do these things. I, they were very simple, like basic business things that everybody in the coaching and online course world knows about and talks about constantly. But they'd been things that were like veiled from my eyes, like they were impossible. Like I couldn't think about them or do them. And then suddenly I could. And then within like two months, I was, you know, running my online business from Bali, making $10,000 a month instead of $2,000 a month. My life was completely changed and a billion times better. And I was like, whoa, baby, that was fast. And I was like, I need to tell more people about this. So anyways, I I hope that wasn't too long, but that was sort of like my initial foray of realizing existential king. I, I was going to ask you for that exact story
0: because so many of us struggle with that, you know, the root chakra uncertainty around these seemingly very black or white linear, like first you make this amount of money, then you make that amount. And if you're struggling, then you're probably destined to continue struggling. And your, your story is obviously living proof. I want to clarify, and, and we'll get more into this. When you talk about that zing, right? When you talk about that sensation, how much of it, because I'm a big Byron Katie fan too, and I think mental folks you know, are very attracted to that kind of work because it, it's humbling, right? Mm-hmm. How, how could you be so sure? And then, and then the ego kind of finds a way to tuck in. Okay, well, I can't be so sure, you know? Okay, fine. But you're talking about this sensation, this embodied acknowledgement and awareness. Did you have to reframe the bodily sensation, right? Because we can label a sensation whatever we want, we can label something anxiety or excitement and the actual feeling of the butterflies and the clench and the energy moving up could be exactly the same, right? So how much of of your practice at that time, let's say early practice was like a mental frame shift and how much of it was simply just like a kind of somatic experiencing approach of just being with whatever was in non-resistance?
1: Yeah. Beautiful question. So it was definitely both. And I'll I'll try to tell you more about that. I'm a very heady intellectual person. And one of the reasons why I recommend to people that they do the work of Byron Katie on whatever topic it is before they try EKing it, because I do think that those questions and those turnarounds help so much to like loosen things up and let some of the judgment go. So I had done that. I'd like loosened it up a little bit. And it was, I'd also been steeped in this culture of orgasmic meditation. And one of the other interesting, useful things that Nicole de Don taught was that orgasm is truth. So that, or the truth is orgasmic. So in other words, this idea that honesty, authenticity, vulnerability will always have this sort of limbic involuntary quality to it. You know, we blush when we tell somebody we love them for the first time. When, you know, when we feel, when we're really in it, we just, it's intense. So that was also part of it was I was like, oh my gosh, my body. So it was a very direct somatic thing when I said to myself, nobody should ever want to pay me anything ever. And I felt this like my clitoris was like, (laughs) and I was like, okay, well, there's orgasmic sensation There must be some truth here because that's you know like I said I've been steeped in that situation and and I found it to be it matched up with my experience that there is turn on whenever there is honesty and I was like wow this is a level like that turnaround from Byron Katie sounds so exaggerated and so nasty but that's the actual truth of what my body responds to and says yes to yes please please don't want to pay me money. And I'm like, well, I have to pay attention to this because my ego thinks that my body should say, yes, please, to being paid lots of money. But my body does not say yes, please, to that. My body is like, you know, gets, like, no. why would you want to, like, I couldn't quite, you know. So what's interesting about existential kink is I think it totally fits with all of the more conventional teachings about the law of attraction. You know, I'm sure that Abraham Hicks would say, yeah like what like what you're really turned on about that's what the universe will bring you more of and it just so happened that what my body and my unconscious were actually turned on about was an experience that my ego had oh endless amounts of shame and judgment about and so what i found and and then strangely though if I found that I could set aside that shame and judgment long enough to let the sensation move through. And it was like, it climaxed, it peaked, and I didn't need to keep, you know, repeating it again and again, because the way that I think of it as, I think of existential kink is like, so a courtly love metaphor. If we imagine that the conscious mind, the ego is a knight, and he's out on a quest, and he has certain goals. And then the unconscious, the generative, creative, orgasmic part of us, the body, you know, the body, most of it runs unconsciously all the time, right? Our breath and our blood is the lady. And the lady is, you know, doing exactly what she's doing, creating exactly what she's creating. She's bringing forth whatever seeds have been planted in her through past lives, through karma, through childhood experiences, maybe childhood trauma. And certainly I grew up with a lot of scarcity. So there are definitely those seeds in me. And she's just doing what she's doing. (laughs) She's just giving birth endlessly. And the knight needs her power in order to succeed in his quest and as we know from courtly love what the knight has to do is get down on his knees and humble himself and praise her he doesn't go up to the lady and say hey you know what I got to make some money. So get on board with that. (laughs) Instead he like gets down on his knees and he's like, Oh my God, you're so beautiful. You're so perfect. Exactly. As you are, just let me celebrate you and enjoy you and enjoy what you're already creating. because it's so beautiful. And that is the attitude that has the lady be like, okay, all right. Well, you know, we could work together. I could support you on your quest and and so it's it's really, it's the alchemical marriage is what I realized. I'm also really into all this hermetic, Western, esoteric stuff. but the union of the conscious and the unconscious mind is the alchemical marriage. That's what all of the that's what all of occultism is about. And it turns out that you can you can start doing the alchemical marriage in this very simple way by just getting, you know, letting the conscious mind, letting the ego be very, very humble and saying, okay, there's something about this experience that we're creating and it's not the cruel world just doing it to us. It's like there's some attraction, some orgasm, some participation We might have all sorts of judgments about how it shouldn't be happening. It's wrong. It's bad. It's terrible. But those judgments don't make it go away. That's that's like something I love to point out to people. It's like we have this weird idea that if we judge something or shame something enough, then it will stop. That absolutely is not how it works. If anything, if we want to influence anything, we have to be in a love relationship with it. Yeah, yeah. To cha- love is the essence of magic, it's the essence of alchemy. So loving the parts of myself that want and create things that my conscious mind doesn't like, that's that humbling, that's that, yeah, just true love that allows for true union. So then the way that I see it, like So I was asking myself, well, how did this happen so quickly? I went from this like struggling, this like limping along to this flourishing. And it was a story that I had never heard anybody tell me a story of, I mean, maybe an internet marketer, I don't know, (laughs) but certainly never anybody in my own life had, hadn't gone through that transition. And it really seemed to me, it still seems to me that what happened was because my unconscious mind humbled itself in that way, like the knight to the lady my unconscious got fertilized with the desires of the night to have a beautiful flourishing life, to have plenty of money, to be surrounded by beautiful things, got impregnated with those desires and started to gestate and bring that forth. So in in other words, instead of just being impregnated by my painful childhood experiences or my painful past life experiences, it's now impregnated by my conscious desires. And I found this again and again to be true I've, you know, I've shared it with tens of thousands of people through my online programs, through my book of all sorts of stories, you know, it doesn't just work for me. And I guess I, you've had experiences. Kelly, I would love to hear about your experiences. I think it's so, so cool because it's like this big secret that's kind of been kept from us. But what is I find so amazing, you know, I've read the collective works of Jung. I've read the collective works of Freud, those guys, the fathers of psychotherapy, absolutely knew that this was how it worked and when they would try to tell their patients about it their patients would freak out so much and be like no I don't want this what are you talking about that they created all of dream interpretation the whole point of dream interpretation <laughs> in early psychotherapy was so people so the therapist could be like look your own dreams are telling you that this is true I'm it's not just me that's telling you this to get people to accept this thing, which is very difficult for the ego to accept. And still to this day, you know, I have people leaving reviews for my books that are like, they're, they're super upset by my book. And some people just really don't like me because they really hate this idea that some part of them, even an unconscious part of them might have a pleasure in a painful circumstance in their lives. And I understand that because it is very hard to understand from a conventional point of view, and it, it is a viewpoint that ultimately involves shifting to identifying, instead of with the ego part of us, with the whole of our psyche. And when we're identifying with the whole of our psyche, what that ultimately is, is we're identifying with the fractal hologram of the whole of God that we actually are. So most people, you know, every, I mean, it's cute. It's like, I feel like everybody who considers themselves spiritual is like, yes. I am a part of God. You are a part of God. We're all God. Well, if we're all God, like God must be a kinky ass motherfucker because we're all suffering. And it's like, and so for me, I've just accepted that I am God and I am a kinky ass motherfucker. So it's interesting because existential kink is a mode of taking total responsibility for what we experience in our lives. And ironically, what's very interesting to me you know, it's been a, f- a few years since I wrote the book. I think I wrote it in, you know, 2019. It got published in or 2018. It got published in 2020. It's been a while. I've been doing the practice every day. And as I've done the practice, I've like my psyche has flipped. And like, I feel more and more the way that <laughs> the way that everything is being done through me by grace, through me and for me by grace. Which is also totally true. It's like it's totally true that I'm totally responsible, and it's totally true that it's all happening spontaneously by grace or God's will or whatever. So, well, I've been rambling for a while. Let me let you. Know. Okay. No, I mean it's such a perfect download of this.
0: It's complex, right? And I think, at least theoretically, the, the folks listening have some introduction to what it is to take this level of radical responsibility for their experience and their innate power. What I find revolutionary about these concepts is that it it goes beyond simple acceptance. You can get somewhere with Byron Katie's work, which is in the acceptance arena, where you can accept that there are dimensions that are subconscious that are, you know, up to no good, right? But you're still aligned fundamentally with your conscious desires, and you're still at odds really with with those like sneaky, annoying, embarrassing, shameful, fetishy, you know, desires for punishment, let's say, like this masochistic part of us. And what I get from your teachings is that it's not just about acceptance and it's even not just about approval. It's actually another dimensional step into eros, right? Into the reclamation of the erotic nature, as you were describing, of this experience of healing, right? Like coming into wholeness, right? If I, I think too in like gendered polarities, right? If that masculine container, that masculine consciousness is turning towards all of the kinetic motion through the body, whatever it may be. Cause just think about like when we get what we want. Or it just happened to me this morning. I got something I have been like sweating up at night about, and it was like, hmm, tasted like nothing. So it explains why the charge in my body, when I get what I don't want compared to the charge in my body, when I get what I do want, what is more, right? Like, it's like, of course, but this comportment of consciousness towards that moving feminine energy of devotion, right? Like that. I love that. Like that night kneeling at her feet right that is that is way more than tolerance right that's way more than acceptance and it's even more than approval it brings in that sacred erotic energy field and you know the first time that i was exposed to this Idea, I guess if I could relate it was through Robert Masters, when I first started to look at, you know, shadow work as like a modality. And he taught me about eroticized wounds, right? Like, why would it be that I would be attracted to this person so intensely, who, you know, imago style, like represents so much of the pain and suffering of my childhood, but like really attracted to him, right? Like, not just like, okay, I'll take it. And, and not super attracted to somebody who might represent healthy love, right? And so he talks about how you know we, we have this, I don't know, this, this tendency to eroticize that hurt, right? So it's, it's taking it from the dimension of the familiar, right? Because it's one thing to say like, oh, of course you're going to surround yourself with the same patterns you were exposed to in your childhood. But what if we actually eroticize them? Right? What if we get wet about the shit that hurt us, you know, in the same way back then that it does now. So it's, it's really, it explains so many of these really addictive, like chemically addictive patterns of suffering and struggle in our life in a way that, you know, just sort of the mundane layer of like, you kind of keep doing the same thing, you know, to do from your upbringing. It's, it's not a sufficient explanation, you know? So, Yeah. I love this. And, and I do think that part of it is many, many of the women in the salon have referenced parts work. I think we all have found like tremendous healing through that modality as well And this, like, how do we interact with these aspects of ourselves without judgment, right? And recognize that, you know, you can try and lock that little part in the closet, but she's going to be screaming and tantruming, you know, audibly, whether you like it or not. And how, How else have you been able to, I'll ask, like put that shame and judgment aside, right? So you mentioned Byron Katie and sort of like the intellectual cognitive layer of like turning these beliefs, once you're aware of them on their head, sort of like really interrogating them through inquiry. Heart's work is really just sort of the dispassionate, maybe even compassionate exploration of all of the different aspects, you know, the managers and the exiles, everything that's kind of in there the circus, I call it, you know, that's in there experiencing one single feeling, one single sensation. Have you found anything else to be particularly helpful with putting aside the shame and judgment, the resistance, right? Because you talk about, you know, in in your writing And you're such an incredible writer. I just want to make that. So I'm such a bibliophile and your book is so excellent. Your writing is, I mean, you could read it in, in an afternoon, just because it's like literally that much of a a page turner. It's so, so well done. You know, you talk about how once we get this concept and maybe we're brave enough, courageous enough to start to sit with the sensations that arise when experiences, unwanted experiences are crossing our path. Right. But we still are going to, and you talk about it, like, I don't know, maybe I'm like misrepresenting your, your thoughts, but like, like, a like rubbing one out quickly, right? Like, it's like a quick, like, okay, let's just get this done. Right. And that is not it. Right. That is, that is like being in a relationship with a man who's just like tolerating your hysterics or whatever. It's a different thing. Right. So I just want to like drill down a little bit more on, like how, how do you set up this container for yourself of that kind of devotion and adoration so that the ego isn't like sneaking around, just I'm speaking from experience, you know, saying, okay, okay, this is the way to get, this is now the practice to get what I want and what I really want. I'll get this other part that's kinking out on what I don't want out of the way so that I can get what I want. Right. And Obviously, this is a, it's called a practice for a reason. You said you you do it every single damn day, right? So that may be it. That may be the answer is just do it every damn day, right?
1: Yeah, well, this is such a wonderful question, Kelly, because that is the challenging part about existential kink is getting to the point where one can set aside enough of the conscious mind's fear and shame to really touch that place in a way that is super surrendered, super devotional, super not like, oh, I'm just going to touch you so you should fuck up and like move on to a better life. But like, I am here with you. Like, yes, like, let's feel what you're feeling. Let's, you know, be on your side. It is super, super challenging. And I think what often happens with existential pain, what happened for me is that people will have some very quick early, big transformations when they first start doing it. Like there will be some things that are just like ready to pop. Like some things that you're just like tired. You don't even have the energy to feel shame and judgment about anymore. (laughs) You're like, oh, this is here. So that is often the experience. So there's a, a bit of beginner's luck with existential kink, which is cool. And then People tend to get down into things where like, okay, well, there's still all these other issues in my life that are like still doing these things that my conscious mind really isn't into. I would really love to change them. I would really love to apply existential kink in the process of alchemizing them and integrating them. And that's when it does tend to get down into the nitty gritty. And I have this process in my book called Deepest Fear Inventory, which is like stripping fear and shame away, like layers of paint. And that's really great. And also, I mean, for me, the process is definitely like daily work and definitely getting into a devotional posture to like what already is, what is already happening, the great dance of, you know, this, you know, whatever it is, Maya, this great thing unfolding And so a few different things, like one is I like to maintain awareness that my ego, it's always going to be on the side of mammalian survival it wants money it wants appreciation it wants love it wants status it wants everything that enhances survival always and it does not want anything that takes us closer towards humiliation pain death all of the things that do not support survival But the part of me that is here for incarnation, that my soul is here for the whole ride, like it wants the experience of surviving and it wants the experience of dying. It wants the experience of everybody liking me and it wants the experience of everybody hating me. And, you know, just like we were talking about the Alan Watts, like it's, it's God playing hide and seek with God's self. So I do, part of my process in letting go of my continuing layers of guilt and shame, I mean, I've gotten pretty deep with it. There's this whole theology I've got, but I work with Babylon, who is, I consider her like the patron goddess of existential king. And Babylon is, she's like Ishtar, Anana, Astarte, but who's been through the ringer of patriarchy. So Babylon first appears as a figure in the book of Revelations, and she's riding this great beast, and John of Patmos, the writer of Revelations, says, you know, I beheld this woman, she was covered with jewels, she was holding aloft this grail, and on her forehead it said... Mystery Babylon, the Great Mother of Harlots and of the Abominations of the Earth. (laughs) So she appears in Revelations, and she appears also in the angelic channelings that John Dee and Edward Kelly did, and she appeared also in the visions of Aleister Crowley. So basically, I have, I've, I mean, for myself and what I offer in my online courses about magic and in my mystery school is really this whole path of initiation. So Babylon is that which. She gives herself freely to all. She permeates everything. She holds herself back from nothing. She's a whore because she is completely giving and completely receiving everyone and everything. And it's pretty much a metaphor for Christ consciousness, except instead of being focused on the crucified guy on the cross, it's about this tantric taboo. You know, she was scary to the (laughs) the guy in the second century CE who saw her, but this is really the disowned feminine from, you know, we've been under more than 2000 years of heavy duty patriarchy where the predominant Judeo-Christian mythos that still, you know, reverberates in our culture, recognizes a father, a son, and a Holy Spirit, like, what? <laughs> like where's, where's the mom, you know? So she's like the missing mom. And she's not just a little, you know, saintly virginal mom. She's like a mom who does what the fuck she wants and gets off on everything. <laughs> so I've done a lot of, so it's it's, it's tantric hermeticism, it's Thalamic Gnosticism, Gnostic Christianity to really invite that devotion to that archetype of she who receives everything and gets off on everything. And... Yes. So that that is not an easy answer because probably a lot of your listeners aren't like, wow, I was just looking for a super weird pagan Christian religious thing to get involved in. But that's what I've done. That's how I work with my layers of shame. So the work of Byron Katie, Deepest Fear Inventory, Super Weird Magic. I also, you know, it's, it can be, so that's pretty complex. And it can also be just as simple as really remembering Yeah, my conscious mind hates this. It totally judges this. And none of that hatred or judgment has done a single thing to like move the situation an inch. None of this shame has moved it. So, like just being, you know, it's just saying to oneself, well, you know, can I drop the shame for five minutes? Can I drop it for 10 minutes? Could I pretend that I'm like a space alien who's beamed in from another dimension? And I don't even know yet that I'm supposed to be ashamed of this situation in my life and just feel the sensations that are here. So that, that simple space alien beaming in can help too.
0: Yeah, like those new eyes, right? That's, yes. Look, so you have a quote I love that I, I wrote about too. Is- So you're right. In fact, the conscious mind worries about all the bad stuff and thinks about how to avoid it. But that worry is secretly, shadowily, a kind of erotic caress, (laughs) obsessive dwelling with rapt fascination on the face of the very beloved failure and humiliation, right? So I've talked about like the deliciousness of victim consciousness too. Like obviously our needs are being met by these sort of like crumbs of fulfillment. And we know there's like a delicious banquet we could show up for. We just don't know how to get from the crumbs to the banquet. But this to me is a very important link that this concept of worry as an erotic caress. I've brought this concept to a lot of the activists that I work with and really just foregrounding this possibility That we are in an erotic dynamic with our so-called, you know, enemies, thinking about them every single day and monitoring, you know, the ticker tape of news to find out what they're up to. And how could you call that an enemy, right? That is an erotic caress. And so I think that this work has the capacity to generate empathy and compassion and an acknowledged connectedness. Where we might consciously say we want to disconnect from, let's say, to just recognize we're already in dynamic. So why don't we just check it out? Right. And I and I'll share a little story, because I could share many, but I'll share a little story of how this work and my awareness of your work afforded me an experience of empathic compassion where it was not formerly available, which is, you know, that I grew up, my parents, but mostly my dad, right? Is like, and I know a lot of people have. Dead types like this, but he's he loves like the negative stories, right? Like you can't walk into a room without him having some story about, like, you know, somebody who was murdered, killed, broken into, <laughs> raped, you know, it's like it's a joke now, you know, that every single time he's got like these like horrific horror stories of like his cousin's cousin's cousin who fell off a bridge or whatever. And it's just so much catastrophizing and almost like crying wolf kind of energy that everybody's just kind of like please stop. And it's a very annoying trait. And one that as I've like developed a more individuated relationship to my parents over time, I have felt more comfortable saying like, listen, I'm not available for this kind of update. Thanks. And then I had, I did an interview recently. This wasn't too long. It was maybe like four months ago or five months ago. And I was telling a story. There is a father who father turned activist named David Carmichael. I've written about and I've spoken about extensively and long story short, I'll make it very short so that I don't get into the kink territory again, telling the long version, which is to say that he was started on an antidepressant and was one of many individuals who experienced what's called akathisia, impulsivity induced akathisia. And he murdered his son, right? He murdered his 11 year old son at the time and woke up to this whole world of what these medications can be capable of inducing, right? So I've told that story as just an anecdotal evidence of a lot of what is actually in the medical literature around the potential for these medications to, you know, in a way that we're not risk stratifying for, induce these pretty horrific, unexpected outcomes that are morbid. And anyway, I was like in an interview and I kind of referenced that story talking about the untold adverse effects of these medications. And I could feel, I could feel it. I could feel the shift from whatever the hell I was talking about before to telling this story. And I could feel myself. I hope nobody clips this out of context.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. right (laughs) right
0: I could feel myself getting off on it. Honestly, I really could feel like something in my, I became almost like a predatorial energy and something rose up energetically inside me. And I could feel my own body shift as I told this super fucked up story about a horrible thing that happened. And of course I'm telling it in service of other people's awareness that they could potentially maybe hear this story and one person will not start, you know, not walk to you know, CVS to fill the script because they heard this story. And in the rational mind, there's all sorts mm-hmm. of, I might share it, but I felt it in my body. And then I thought of my dad and I thought, Oh my God, that's why he does that. Because it feels good because it feels alive. It feels something other than, you know, the Whatever limited capacity we have, as I was saying earlier, to experience pleasure, joy, you know, even just like a basic sense of expansive okayness in our body. We don't have that capacity largely because of our habituated trauma dynamics neurologically. I don't know. And so we get really attuned to getting little hits off of scary, horrible shit that we say we don't want to focus on or feel, or we say is bad and shouldn't be happening. So it's like all of these dimensions, right? Of this work where not only was I able to see, you know, in myself, but I was able to then relate differently to something I was judging.
1: Mm -hmm. I could see it,
0: you know, I could see it happening in my own little sphere. And so if that's true, you know, that I, like many people, am getting off on horrible things in the world. And, you know, I'm a huge David Data fan and he's informed a lot of my awareness around polarities. And he talks about the dark masculine and feminine and that that's why we sit down to the news because we're not getting fucked right by our partners. And we listen to these horror stories one after another. And we enjoy it, right? We enjoy it. Without this dimension, we are hapless victims wandering through, you know, the battlefield of our own struggles, not recognizing that it's this inner war right? And so I wonder how this has informed the way that you relate to desire, right? Because I know that you believe in a desire-based existence and you've described that already as being, you know, this vector of feminine life force, right? Shakti. When you have a new desire in your life, is there a way that you treat it, right? Mm-hmm. Because let, let's say I, I want I don't know let's say related to that little example like let's say i want for all of the humans who might otherwise interact with their own emotions through you know the pharmaceutical model i want them to just know there's another way that's it I'm not attached they're following that path just be aware right so if that's what i really want is fetishizing the scary stuff that can happen is that the best path maybe it is i don't know What I came to ultimately was that celebrating, you know, what's possible and publishing in the medical literature, you know, what's possible, these reclamation stories of of health felt better in my, Mm
1: -hmm. like consciously
0: better in my body, but without acknowledging that I'm also enjoying, you know, the other path, the fighting path, then I'm going to probably have limited gains. Right. So like when you have a new desire, like that you become aware of, is there like a special way that you hold it when Mm -hmm. it's just born, you know? Because obviously when we get down the line of not having what we want, you've already described how to relate to it. I mean, this is the way as far as I'm concerned. But what about like a new, like a nascent little like firstborn bud of like, oh, I think maybe I, maybe I want to live in the country or something, you know, like whatever it might be. Is there a way that you handle that so that it, it doesn't necessarily get twisted up into these like hidden and exposed polarities of fulfillment?
1: Or maybe it always does. Maybe you would say, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I love the question. So, I mean, I think when I become aware of a new desire, I do practice opening up to it erotically the same way that I open up to things already manifesting in my life. And, you know, I like I mentioned, I'm into Thalema and magic and there's this saying in Thalema, uh, it's a big part of it, which is do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. And, you know, so with this do what thou wilt is the whole of the law, it begs the question, well, who art thou? <laughs> you know, who is the thou that is that is willing and desiring? And for me, I've had this interesting process of like with sorcery, with magic, I met so many of my material desires, like my material desires get met very quickly these days, which I'm very grateful for. You know, I give flowers, people give me presents. So it's just, like, it's so nice. So I guess what what is sort of front and center for me more these days is like things that come to me in my dreams, like things to create, things to do. And I would say like my relationship with those is very much the surrendered devotion because I've learned, and you know, maybe there can always be easier, softer ways discovered, but I've learned that as I follow these like sort of spirit inspired dreams and visions, what happens is always an intense alchemical process where parts of me get, (laughs) you know, things get really shaken up. So it's, I've learned that the process of realizing desire is very much not usually jiving with the conscious mind's ego preferences, no matter if it's like some sort of intense kinky thing, like scarcity or rejection or if it's a positive, beautiful vision to create something, there's still always going to be things that the ego's preferences are like, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a deep ride and it's a deep ride into greater and greater surrender and greater and greater identification with the divine self. You know, In the start of the book, I have this prologue that is a retelling of the Pluto and Persephone story which is about, let's see if I can go into it right now, but we all know the story. Like Persephone is this maiden. She's the daughter of Demeter. Hades, Pluto comes up from the underworld, big bad guy in a chariot, kidnaps her down to the underworld, you know, holds her prisoner there. It's basically kidnap and tragic, you know, rape scenario. And her mother Demeter is grieving her and pulling her hair out, looking all over the earth for her, refuses to let it be springtime until she finds her. And the usual version of the story is Persephone eats some pomegranate seeds and that means she has to spend six months of the year in the underworld so even after her mother finds her and rescues her, she's still, she can go up to Mount Olympus but she has to go back down the end. Right. It's, kind of, it's kind of a sucky story. It's sort of like, oh that's it? She just has to hang out with her kidnapper and rapist for six months of the year? Right. Oh, yay. So I sort of intuited this like deeper meaning one day when I learned that, you know, another name for Persephone is Kore. And Kore was worshipped as the goddess, just you know, full stop, like the only thing going on for thousands of years before anybody ever thought of a male god of the underworld or a male Pluto. It was just, it was Kore. Kore is the earth, Kore is everything, all Kore all the time. And I was like, wow, there is some deep way. So in this retelling, this at the start of my book, when she eats the pomegranate seeds, she remembers that she divided herself into this innocent maiden part and this evil kidnapper rapist part and that she played this game of hide and seek with herself so she could have these like terrible thrills and chills and that Hades, instead of just being this evil monster, is actually a part of herself who is so in love with her who will do absolutely anything for her, even play the role of this evil, detestable monster in order to fulfill her having an experience essentially of her own power. Because if we were just, if we had, and someday we will, and in some dimension we already do, but if we just had full knowledge of our divine power, what is there to do but just float in bliss? Which obviously is awesome, and obviously some part of us is currently doing that right now and will again and everything. But this part of the journey where we feel powerless at times, where we feel like terrible, traumatic, evil things are happening to us and our loved ones, the world, that is in itself a way that the divine gets to experience its own power in duality. So we all love, you know, nighttime and daytime, you know, winter and summer, the, these polarities of the natural world. Well, they go hand in hand with polarities of everything else, polarities of good and evil, tragedy and comedy. So we're in this polar world because that's where the, and and that's where electricity is. You know, we have this life, energy, chi, orgasm, whatever we call it. It can really only be experienced in these polar situations. So in one way, it's like, we can, yeah, we can have a, a super victimized attitude about that and just be like, you know, poor me, I'm just this innocent mortal that's been born into this terrible world. Or we can start being like, Maybe not poor me. Maybe I'm not just this poor innocent maiden who's being subjected to this. Maybe I am a divinity so great that I am both completely the innocent maiden and completely the evil monster at the same time. and maybe I can celebrate that wholeness and you know so that's the interesting thing about existential kink because it sounds really weird and it's really far out, but ultimately it's super wholesome, and I feel so much more relaxed hanging out with people like yourself Kelly who have done some of this integration work than I do with people who are in victim mode because people who are in victim mode are just looking for people to blame for their you know their issues and it's actually very you know people every villain in history has seen themselves as a victim you know Adolf Hitler felt super victimized by life And they see everything that they do to others as like some sort of justification for what they themselves suffered or some sort of restoration. And of course it's insane. And of course, you know, not all of us are as bad as Hitler thankfully (laughs) in our delusion, but that level of delusion is so pervasive in our culture that there has to be some, I don't know. It's very, very interesting to me. And I'm I'm very, very glad that we're talking about it because (sighs) I'm really happy that more people are waking up to this willingness To understand that we are but characters in a dream. You know, it's like God is dreaming this dream, the great goddess, divinity, whatever we want to call it. Kelly's a character, Carolyn's a character. You know, there's evil, abuser, criminal characters who are also themselves sweet, innocent babies who were born. You know, it's like we're just characters. And it's just like our nighttime dreams. You know, if I get attacked in my nighttime dream, it's a part of me that I'm encountering. And it's the same thing in this level of the dream. And so I get really excited about people becoming lucid in this way, because that's truly what it is. It's lucidity to remember that I'm the whole thing. I'm not just this character. And it's this fun thing that the divine is doing with itself, getting to experience itself as this little character who seems to be powerless in these ways. And it gets to experience all of this polarity and all of this electricity. And so, yeah, it's, it is kind of challenging because what I've, I mean, at least for myself, really waking up to that involves not looking down on any anybody who does anything wrong like the tendency is i think even a very sweet spiritual people to be like well yes i can forgive crazy evil criminals like adolf hitler i understand you know but it's like yeah, but you're you sort of you think you're better than don't you like you think you're not as bad and what my continual process is is to get to the place where i don't see myself as better than or less than anyone in a very visceral way that instead just really directly recognize them as other faces of myself. I feel like I'm, I've been on a pretty far out metaphysical. Oh, I love it. And back I, to you, Yeah, <laughs> no. I
0: mean, and the, the, the most fertile soil for that work, at least in my own life, has been, you know, to leave a relationship, let's say, like a romantic relationship, to choose to leave and not have to make the person bad and wrong mm-hmm. you know, leave a dynamic to close a door without the person needing to be bad and wrong is it's the hardest work I have ever done in my life. And mm-hmm. I have been on this path, you know, of radical personal responsibility and resolution and transformation of victim consciousness for some time now. Right. So this is, it is the work and it's the practice. And I think that's also why I've become, as I've spoken, you know, to some of the other women about very interested in kink and how unconscious and kink and how limited my understanding was, you know, secularly, colloquially, of course, I'm sure there are people listening who are, you know, experts. However, for me, it's delightful because it's like, it is the ultimate sacred expression of that, which would otherwise be endless pain and suffering. And, you know, what I mean by that, I know you agree is that, you know, we look at unconsented dynamics of domination and oppression and, you know, the sort of sub realm of victimization and those who are subjected to all of the pain and suffering, right. That is the story of human history, right? Like that is the story of most of our lives and whether it's with the universe or whether it's with an individual or just your life circumstances. It's like, I didn't consent to this. What the fuck is going on? This is horrible and painful. And meanwhile, you're enjoying it, right? Which is what we've been talking about the whole you know, conversation. So what is it to actually understand what you desire, understand your pleasure, right? Understand what it is that you consciously and unconsciously want. And how do you enter into intentional containers with yourself in your own life, with your partner, right? Whatever little segments of, of focus you're going to attend to, how do you intentionally enter into these containers acknowledging that the pleasure pain spectrum is totally married, mm-hmm. it's totally married. And in fact, that's what embodiment is about. I mean, most of the, let's say like uh, female subs I've talked to who play that part in their you know, erotic dynamics find that there's no way for them to better get into their bodies than like a good slap, right? And that they are the ones, in fact, who determine the strength of the slap, the location of the slap, the timing of the slap, the frequency of the slap, right? So they have studied themselves enough to know this is how pain feels good to me, right? Pain with quotes. and entering into a dynamic where it's organized, right, where power and hierarchy and all of these things that are fundamentally going to sneak out, right, because yes, we want to believe and strive for like this flat plane of spiritual egalitarianism, but we didn't come here for that, right? We would still be, you know, disembodied if we just wanted that. So we came here for this play. And so, how do we organize it into that complementary space where all of the needs are met? Everyone's enjoying themselves. And it's not as simple as, like, you know, eye gazing into energetic divinity and, you know, I don't know, whatever I thought like tantric experiences were. So for me, this framework, it is the resolution. It is the sacred reclamation of that, which we otherwise would like unconsciously continue to experience without awareness, without intention and without pleasure, right? That's already there. As you were saying, like what you felt in your clit, the moment you first, you know, reflected on this, it's, it's there. And so how do you interact with it? And I just, I love this. For me, this has been like just a level of breaking through into an expanded arena that I just feel like delight in my body. Like just the whole experience of my life these days, every single time. That's why I asked you, you know, about the desire every single time I find that I I want something, right? The way that I interact with it, as you're saying, is, is so different. The way that I interact with the things that I don't want that are happening is so different. And then there's an imperative, you know, as you started your process with orgasmic meditation, there's an imperative to understand the body's language of pleasure and sensation, and to really attend to those sensations because, you know, like (laughs) it's very easy to fly up there and leave this numb and disconnected. So I'm just so, so thrilled to have this conversation here, Carolyn. And I want to end with a question I've asked everyone, which is, you know, you have so many tools. I know you have an enormous toolkit and you're always expanding and growing and you have, yeah, just an amazing process underway. I I wonder if you have another book in the works as well. (laughs) Put that out there. It's the most annoying question people ask me, so sorry. But what is one tool that in your embodiment process, right? So in that, in that journey down from your head into this beautiful body that you devote yourself to as an oracle, right? In your process, what was one tool that always seemed to work, right? To get you out of here and, and down here?
1: Oh, wow, what a great question. So I do a self-stroking practice and I lead a guided self-stroking practice in my electric guest program, which is called orgasmic gnosis. So orgasmic meditation was partnered. This is like, you don't need a partner. You just need your fingers or your hands. (laughs) So that, that simple practice of just, you know, touching myself very lightly and slowly in a way that is much lighter and much slower than if I was just trying to give myself a climax. And really just focusing in on the sensation and spending, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes doing that. You know, people call it self-pleasure and totally it can be that. But to me, it is not just about pleasure in the sense that usually there's a very small window of sensation that my mind will label as pleasure. And what the practice is about, as I understand it, is working on slowly expanding that window and being able to receive more of the sensations as pleasure, which means, you know, surrendering more, opening more, you know, it's analogous in life. Like if Elon Musk just showed up at my door with a check for $20 million and was like, I just really liked your book. I just really wanted to give you this. You know that would be outside of my range of sensation. Like I might just faint. I might just like I wouldn't be able to feel like oh hey Elon thanks like and really connect with him in a heart open way because I would just be like blacked out. So it's like both good things and negative things can have this effect of being outside of our range of sensation. And the more we expand that range, the more we can be present, you know, in relationship and with good things and challenging things in our lives. So that sort of stroking practice that's descended from what I learned in orgasm meditation. I love that. I love that. And
0: yeah, I, I think that I have lived <laughs> to, to know that my capacity is very, very limited. That's why I don't even call my practice self-pleasure anymore. I call it sensation play because it's like, I just need to start at the basics of like, how many minutes, as you're saying, can I, you know, literally like run a feather or my fingers over my body before I can't be with myself any longer. I mean,
1: it's minutes. Wow!
0: Mm-hmm. So you know that's also why this is a practice and a lifestyle and you know a whole worldview. So thank you so much for your work, for your intrepid spirit, and for, for yeah, being willing to to be with me in this. Space. Thank you, Kelly. It's been so
1: much fun.